0: Good afternoon, everyone, or whoever is watching or listening. This is Bassam Haddad from Status Al-Wada, joined by uh, Noura Aliqat, my uh, co-host. And this is Politics in the Time of Corona. This is our fourth episode uh, on Iran. And I will uh, ask my co-host to introduce our guests, and then we'll get on with it.
1: We're very lucky today. We're joined by two guests to discuss the situation and what politics Um, in the time of corona looks like from Tehran Um, in two geographies. We have Alex Shems, who is based in Tehran, uh, to tell us about what it looks like there, which has been a ground zero um, in the course of the expansion of the coronavirus, as well as Huda. Guttabi, who is based in chicago and has been taking a primary lead in challenging the sanctions regime on iran which has been a debilitating and crippling part of the medical um, infrastructure within iran during these trying times so welcome to you
0: both ahlan, was ahlan thanks for having us
1: we want to start off just by asking how you all are doing how your families are how you're feeling
0: and how are you coping with with the situation, of course um, well, I guess maybe I can go
2: first um, I'm doing well I'm doing okay, I'm doing well. My family here uh, is doing okay. I think um you know in Iran, we've been dealing with this for about five weeks or so, so on one hand, we've gotten used to certain aspects of it. Um, on the other hand, it's been very surprising watching it spread uh in the u s and Europe in the last few weeks so um, I've gotten used to being worried for my family's safety here in Iran, uh, but it's a very new worry for me to be very afraid for my family in the U.S. and their safety. Um, but, but generally, I'm doing okay. I've gotten more and more used to staying at home for long periods of time. How about you, Hoda? <laughs> Um,
3: Things have definitely been intense. I don't think anybody like predicted the ways that the United States would be responding to this both domestically and internationally. Um, So it's been pretty chaotic um, and very difficult. I mean, I always, I'm worried for my family in Iran. So I think right now it's just, um, it feels heightened and escalated. And I call and check in with family members, especially um, people who are on the front lines. And um, to cope, I have learned sitar and Alex and I have a duet that we're working on.
0: A duet?
1: They, you all, we might ask you to perform that as as part of
2: the program. <laughs> Very early stages.
1: Well, I'm glad that you're coping in that way. Why don't, you know, so um, Alex, you touched on a really important point, which is that we begin by being really overly concerned with Iran. And now, obviously, you have family in the United States you're concerned about because the numbers in the U.S. have now hit 85,000 thereby surpassing all other uh, countries in the number of COVID cases. And so why don't you, um, can you take us a little bit into the interior of what it looks like from your vantage point into head on and what it's felt like?
2: Sure. Well, so basically starting about uh, five, six weeks ago is when uh, the first alarm bell started going off here in Iran. Um, the first measures that were taken were um, schools and universities were closed about five weeks ago. Uh, and then subsequently, uh, a lot of public venues were closed as well. So, theaters, cinemas, uh, gyms, um, basically any kind of large public uh, entertainment or leisure facility. And so, from five weeks ago, basically, you have a huge percentage of the population that has been um, staying at home, confined to home, whether as students or as people who are providing childcare. And um, at at that time you had the first shift uh, in the situation in terms of like a lot of classes, they went on TV. So all classes are taught through TV. um, And then university classes have moved kind of online which is what we're seeing happening other places as well. and that's kind of when there's there was a lot of fear. I think at that point, especially too, because there wasn't a lot of information available about what was happening, and it wasn't clear uh, how serious it was and how people were going to respond. And so um, the first cases we had were in Qom, about an, two hours south of Tehran, and um, and then from there they kind of spread across the country and then spread uh, you know across across the borders as well into other countries nearby. It was kind of unclear to what extent things were going to be shut down, and there was conflicting messages. And I think one of the reasons for that was also because um, it costs a lot of money to shut things down. I think that's something that people are just kind of waking up to in the U.S. and Europe after a few days or a few weeks of shutdown. Um, But but all of the overtime salaries that have to be paid for uh, police, for people who are working uh, on the clock, for I mean at the same time that medical expenses are kind of suddenly exploding, um, there was an expectation that there was gonna be a total shutdown and then it really never came. Um, And and it's very clear that part of it is uh, due to the fact that the government doesn't have the money to pay for the shutdown. And confining millions of people to their homes would deprive incomes at exactly the time that basically Iran's economy has gone into a total meltdown. Um, After, it's been about two years since Trump reimposed U.S. sanctions and uh, the result of that was immediate. Um, Two years ago, basically, the Iranian currency became worth about one-third of what it was. Uh, I think it happened over the course of about a week. It lost two-thirds of its value. People's life savings went up in smoke. Um, and, And part of the sanctions were also limiting Iran's ability to sell oil and other commodities abroad. And so overnight, almost, you had a huge portion of the government's budget wiped out. And we had seen the effects of this over the last two years and cuts to social security programs and cuts to social services. Just in November, there were major protests um, against an attempt to increase the price of gasoline, which was linked to the, to the strain of sanctions. And at this moment, it's very clear that the government is not in a position uh, to, to take care of a lot of the issues that need to be taken care of. Um, despite the fact that Iran actually does have a very strong healthcare system and it has a very well-developed health infrastructure. And this is one of the things over the last few days, there's been rumors that there's going to be a shutdown of inner city travel, which would be extremely helpful, I think, uh, in certain ways in terms of limiting the spread of the virus to rural areas that have less developed health infrastructure, because that's something we've seen as well in Iran, like, the first week, for example, uh, many people weren't necessarily taking seriously the social distancing measures, and we had people going on vacation to the Caspian Sea, which um, is like a beach area, and uh, which it's it's very interesting to watch what's happening in the U.S. because we're seeing that a very similar series of events happens where the first wave of physical distancing is is promoted, and then people immediately try and go on vacation. And what happened in Iran is that the health system of those beach regions was basically overwhelmed the next week by uh, a, a massive explosion in coronavirus cases among people who were working with tourists or were, you know, were working in the service industry. And, um, and I'm afraid that we might see something similar to that in the US um, in the coming days.
1: Alex, let me interrupt it, you briefly before we switch over, cause you, you did um, start to give us a glimpse of the effect of the sanctions regime. But before we switch to that, Can you give our listeners a little bit more of, um, so five to six weeks ago, the uh, cases break out. There isn't a complete imposition of a closure. We see a spike in in corona cases in in some areas like the Caspian scene. But what about the rest of the country? If people are not in fact, if there is not in fact some sort of a mandated shutdown, then how are these cases being contained? Is it more through tracking and containment? Is it through, because, you know, about on March 12th, we saw aerial images emerge of mass graves in Iran. I mean, I'm not sure if that's verifiable. So you're giving us a picture that people have not responded um, necessarily with with extreme urgency. And yet um, we're also not getting this idea that it's getting worse. So can you clarify that for us?
2: Yes, definitely. I mean I think it's it's been much more gradual than what's happened in the US. I think the first week or two um when it really started spreading in Pom, which is where the the photos of those graves were being found, right? It it spread under the radar because it took a few, at least a week or two, for tests to kind of be rolled out. And then by that time, um, as far as I understand, the, the source uh, of the arrival was um, Chinese seminary students who were studying in Rome. And by the time I, I think people became aware of the outbreak, uh, it had really spread throughout the seminary. And it had and it had spread into government offices as well, um, because we, we had a number of um, major clerics who came down with it. and, and and, and passed away, as well as government officials who, within the first week or two, were getting it very quickly. And I think part of this is because they're, you know, connected to the public, but, um, but, but I think Qom is basically one of the worst affected areas. And the fact that it hit Qom, I think, also relates to the fact that Qom is a, a very transnational city. There are students there from all over. The first cases in Iraq, were, was a student uh, who was in Qom at that time. Uh, and it's also a pilgrimage hub. So you had uh, a lot of people moving from Qom to countries around it, to Pakistan, to India, to Afghanistan, and, and also across the country, people who were visiting Qom. And so basically, because it was already, um, a, I mean, a, a religious tourism hotspot, There was uh, the fact that it spread in that place meant that it spread very quickly, especially in Tehran and cities quite close to home like Esfahan. Um, And it's definitely spread gradually. I think... One of the, the good things about the school closures um, was that it meant that uh, a lot of younger people who are asymptomatic, who have been shown to be major spreaders in other countries because they don't appear to be sick, they don't feel sick, and they, they're pretty sure they're not sick, um, were basically taken out of circulation very early on, right? These are people who, young. I mean, children were staying at home, they weren't infecting classmates, and I think one of the major route of transmission was actually taken out. Um, now, the other side of that, right, is that Closing schools was an easy way uh, for the government to, to, to address the issue without having to spend a lot of money. Because what happens when you close schools is you basically shift the childcare burden onto families uh, instead of having to pay uh, you know, a lot of the costs that would be associated with keeping those schools running. And so, and I think that shows how much the, the, lo- the economic logic is, is forcing these decisions, and it's making it very difficult to take decisions, to take further decisions that might come with a heavy cost at this moment. Um, because the fear is that, uh, they won't be able to pay salaries very soon, for example, for people who are working in, in, uh, ministries. Now, um, it's spread, like I said, kind of over the last few weeks. Um, we reached over the last week a kind of, I mean, I think everyone's seen those graphs of the curves. There's been a kind of leveling where it's become a much, uh, slower spread than it was before. Um, there's a fear that in the next week it's going to jump again because we had the New Year holiday last week. And even though, um... The, the statistics I've seen are that 50% less people travel than they did last year, because normally this is a year when it, uh, everything is closed for two weeks, people go to visit their families and their towns and villages where they're originally from, and and it's the biggest time of travel uh, in, in, the, in the year for Iranians, the beginning of spring. And uh, it basically declined by 50%, but the other 50% still went. And so the fear is that that's going to lead to a second wave of spreading, despite the the, like the kind of leveling out that we've seen recently. And um, however, that being said, in the last day, um, it has been announced that all inner city travel is blocked and that um, all, sh- all non-essential stores will be closed. So we're, we're finally seeing the rollout of some of those measures, which uh, to speculate, I-, I believe is linked to a, an, a fr- an unfreezing of uh, Iranian money, uh, Iranian central bank money that's being held outside of the country that the US has frozen. Um, it it appears that there is a direct relation between uh, the ability to implement measures and um, U.S. money, or sorry, Iranian money that due to sanctions has been blocked from Iranian government access.
1: So I guess that's a great transition to you, Huda, to tell us. um, That's interesting, um, Alex, that you're telling us that that money is actually being um, um, freed up in order to be used by the Iranian government at the same time that the State Department uh, announced yesterday that it was going to tighten sanctions on Iran. Huda, you have been following that closely and also um, helping to lead a campaign to lift these sanctions for at least 120 days to ease the medical crisis, if not to keep it in, you know, indefinitely lifted. Can you tell us about what that campaign looks like and why the U.S. at this critical moment uh, would actually tighten sanctions? Um, almost without international repercussion?
3: I mean, when has the United States done anything with
1: international repercussion? <laughs>
3: um, and could we expect anything more from a Trump regime? I think that it's it's sad that it's not shocking um, that during a time of, like, a profound, just like a global epidemic, uh, Trump will just worsen sanctions and actually worsen the situation in Iran when the world is actually asking on Trump um, and Pompeo and Mnuchin uh, to sanctions. So I think right now, that this is like a, a sort of a, a major emergency and um researchers are actually predicting that if sanctions aren't lifted by may that 3.5 million iranians will lose their lives due to covid and so that's just not um, a number that we're willing to risk or bet on so we're trying to do everything that we can it's a large coalition of union organizers activists um and progressive um organizations from across the country really working on trying to put pressure on the Secretary of um, Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who usually is behind the scenes, but bringing him to light and really letting people know that this is the person pulling the strings, and we have to make sure that he knows that um, that there's a, a There's a lot of people who are very angry um, about what's happening and they're not going to let it go and you're hold them accountable to that. Um, and so we've been working on just a variety of tactics, This is also um, unprecedented in a way to, for a global pandemic to be happening. <laughs> so we're also trying to figure out how to organize in the time of COVID and what that looks like, um, while also like making sure that it this isn't lost in like the larger noise. Um, for us, it's really important that we shed light that the United States isn't just um, we're not asking for aid. We're asking for the United States to release the funds that Iran already has in order to be able to support and deal with COVID that's happening domestically. I think there's a lot of um, like misinformation about like why are you trying to get the United States to pay or like provide aid when they don't even have enough medical. Domestically, and I think that it's really important that, like, we're that the request is not for aid. The request is just to get America's boots off of the necks of Iranians so they can deal with COVID responsibly. Um, and I think that's something that's really important for us. Is also that we we understand that this is a global, like, the, we're, it's a moment that we can actually tie global like liberation and global health in a way that's very intimate. Because now we can see that you know here in the United States, everyone is asking everybody to stay indoors, do their part, flatten the curve. But America has a responsibility in flattening the global curve. And if anything, we can realize that um, if the healthcare system in Iran is not able to take care of Iranian citizens, and Iranians are dying and COVID continues to spread in Iran, that's going to come back and hurt Americans here too. Um, so I think it's um, a very important time to realize now more than ever that our health um, and our safety and our lives literally are deeply and globally connected and interdependent on each other. I think it's really important for us to be able to also make sure that people here realize that it's not just like some far thing happening in another world that they don't know about or isn't affecting them, but it actually is in their healthcare. care. Um, and we're seeing the United States um, completely be a failure of leadership time after time again um, here in the United States, um, they're also sort of mapping this out and replicating this on a global scale. Um, as you mentioned, just yesterday, uh, they added additional sanctions. Individuals and entities in Iran in the middle of countries um, such as China, Pakistan, even the UK calling on the United States to lift sanctions. And um, the United Nations has also called the global ceasefire, and sanctions are a form of warfare, no reason if they're acted against Iran. Um, and this is the time that like America is acting in impunity for usual. but we're gonna do everything in our power to make sure that it's not happening again.
0: Uh, Alex, uh, if I may. If I may uh, ask uh, a question about the domestic situation in Iran and the discourse, especially the government discourse, and perhaps even more broadly, how is this and to what extent is this situation being politicized in Iran, especially vis-a-vis the United States? Uh, We've read reports that uh, we're rejecting uh, help by the United States because... Uh, at one point a uh, major leader uh, suggested that this might be a trojan horse sort of help that would actually exacerbate i mean is is this being politicized or is is are we are we seeing this uh, from our vantage point here in washington but domestically it's actually uh, just a primary concern with the with the spread of the virus and and containing it
2: yeah no i i've seen those statements and i think uh, i i mean i think it's been politicized to a certain level in the discourse of of leaders as they attempt to figure out how to respond to what's happening and to make sense of the spread of of a virus that I think for people around the world, it's kind of unimaginable. It's very hard to wrap your head around what's happening. And I think, uh, however, it's important to highlight the fact that regardless of what um, people might be saying in terms of coming up with, with, with theories about where it's coming from, The fact of the matter is, is that the Iranian healthcare system is completely overwhelmed. There are people, the the kind of stuff that we're just starting to see in the U.S. has been happening in Iran for weeks now, right? There are not enough beds. uh, There is not enough medical equipment. Uh, In a very short period of time, especially given that in other countries, you know, it hit Iran before it hit other countries. And so that was a key time when Iran needed to be importing medical equipment from other countries. And because of U.S. sanctions, it can't do that. And I think that's one thing there's, a, there's some somewhat of a misunderstanding that we're asking for, that people demanding an end to sanctions are asking for a medical exemption. It's not about a medical exemption. It's about the fact that sanctions have forced Iran to be de-linked from the international financial system. So it can't buy anything from anyone. It has to pay in kind when it buys things. And as a result, it has a very limited ability to work with companies outside of Iran. It has a very limited ability even, for example, to buy face masks from a company in Germany or anywhere, right, places that you might not think are connected to U.S. sanctions. And over the last few weeks, Iran has been desperately in need of that and has been in desperately in need of the ability to uh, to buy medical submitment, to buy ventilators from outside of Iran. And instead of the US uh, allowing or creating an exemption so that the sanctions will not be enforced during this period of time or lifting them altogether to relieve the larger economic and political burden that they've imposed on the people of Iran for no good reason, right? Because I think it's important to remember that Trump violated the Iran deal, which was working and which both Iran and the US had been abiding by up until that point. Um, um, basically what you have is a situation in which Iran has lost extremely valuable time and then, uh, for, and then certain statements, certain uh, events are being blown completely out of proportion. Right? And so there is this, um, this saying that we don't want U.S. aid. Now part of the, the idea of saying we don't want U.S. aid is we want the U.S. to give us exactly what is our due. The U.S. has frozen more than hundred billion Iranian dollars in bank accounts in the United States, the majority of which is. Iranian money that was, uh, sorry, it's the profits from Iranian oil that was sold outside of Iran that, due to the imposition of sanctions, gets frozen back in U.S. banks, and it's $100 billion that belongs to Iran. No one's disputing that, but the United States is saying, we won't allow it to be sent to you, right? And so part of the making a point, I think, about saying to the United States, well, we don't want your aid, is that we don't want your handouts. We don't want breadcrumbs off the table when you have basically imposed these crippling, debilitating sanctions on our country that have ruined uh, the lives of 80 million people and which are now forced, putting us into a situation where we're weeks behind responding to a a health crisis, uh, and yet we can't even, and we have to make everything for ourselves. Whereas other countries are able to kind of cooperate or consider, um, you know, the ability even to ship uh, medical supplies from one country to another, from one place to another. Iran is completely on its own because of U.S. sanctions.
1: Alex, let me follow up on that. Um, And and what Bassam, I think, was getting at also, which is internally among Iranians, how has this, it sounds like, it sounds like what it might have done is actually consolidated the Iranian people in opposition to the sanctions regimes in a way that might have muted critique of the Iranian um, regime itself.
2: Let me be completely honest. Over the last four months, The Iranian people have been hit by blow after blow after blow. It's been like getting punched in the face constantly from every single side after two years in which We've had these blows as well. Like I said, imagine that an entire country two years ago, two-thirds of their life savings went up in smoke overnight, right? And um, I think 20% of the population has gone into poverty just in the last two years because of the implementation of U.S. sanctions. The economy was growing 5 to 7%, I believe, before the imposition of sanctions. We contracted 10% last year, right? There's been an incredible blow that has Uh, severely undermine people's living standards in an extremely short period of time. And on top of that, you have austerity measures by a government that has been trying to deal with with these massive cuts to its income, right? So the the protests in November that were violently repressed were an attempt to implement an austerity measure. Following that, right, in January, it's hard to remember all this because it feels like time is moving very quickly, Um, especially, I think, for Iranians, because the thing they were worried about two months ago was that the U.S. was about to bomb Iran and invade it. Uh, you know, right? We were on the cusp of a war in which, in which the United States was bombing. Uh, you know, was trying. You know, uh, assassinated an Iranian general in a foreign country, and the fear and the threat was all of a sudden that we'd have no idea what's going to happen. And I think that was a moment when, for example, because the U.S. attacked. Iran, a lot of people who the last month or two months before were coming to terms with what had, what was one of the most brutal uh, repressions of internal dissent we've ever seen in Iran's history, uh, suddenly diverted their attention to the fact that they were, there was a possibility that all of this was going to be destroyed by the United States, right? And so if there was a moment of kind of gathering around the flag to defend the country from an outsider who would uh, who clearly has no one's interests at in mind, right? And who will do can, will do much worse to the Iranian people than any of their own leaders could, right? I think, and, and what I and I think the reference of Iraq, for example, is very much on people's minds of this is what could happen to you, no matter what they say about them caring about you, the United States caring about you. It's very clear that they don't, um, right? And it's only a month and a half after that that suddenly we have the coronavirus. Uh, and, and sorry, and one more event that happens—you uh, you forget how many events it happens, right? Is that an Iranian passenger plane is downed uh, by the people who claim that they're protecting the Iranian people, right? We have event after event after event that leaves people, I think, bewildered. I think it leaves them in fear, and I think as a result, at this particular moment, there's there's a there's not as it's very hard to imagine what kind of politics is possible because not only are are people have been people been hit over the head over and over and over again uh, in the last few months and in the last few years. They're also faced with the fact that this disease prevents them from gathering. It's, it's a disease that, preve- that in any way possible prevents people from seeing each other, from being connected, from talking to each other. And imagine that three months ago, the internet was shut down for a week and the only way that anyone was able to figure out what was happening was by talking to people. And suddenly we're forbidden from talking to each other. Um, And so I think it I guess for that reason, it's a little bit hard for me to think about the political uh, possibilities. I think I think you're right in a certain sense. There's there is a uh, there is a fear of sanctions. There is a fear of of what's coming that lends people to not, let's say, critically oppose uh, things that they see around them that are that are wrong. But but I don't I think at this point that's not on people's minds. There is a sense of complete exhaustion and of, of deep, deep fear about the present and about the future.
1: So, thank you. That was incredibly um, comprehensive, and it was so good to take us back, to put this into perspective, that in these three short months, the world has been rocked, but Iranians in particular have been rocked um, by these series um, of events, which is a great reality check, right? So thank you for that. And so I want to just shift over to Huda. As we um, wrap up, if you can tell us a little bit more about How the international community has responded defied the u.s and and what how uh folks who are responsible for the sanctions regime in the united states how we can be more involved in the work that you're doing definitely
3: yeah and i also just want to echo one thing that uh um, Alex said also, is that Iranians right now are just like between a rock and a hard place. And I think it's really difficult that there's just like, it's put in this place between like a regime that also has consistently failed them and then the United States that uses that um, against them constantly. So it's really difficult. Um, and I think that we've also seen, like you said, like a, the population kind of going like back and forth, um, but also ultimately at the end, um, under like obviously an Iranian regime that... Is not caring for them, and more importantly, under an American regime that is um, sort of exerting itself in very violent ways. And America has been at war with Iran um, over the past 41 years, and I think that Iranians right now are living like it's wartime. And I think that that's why it's absolutely important that one thing that we're seeing about COVID is that um, it's not just um, a disease that's hitting everybody equally um, or a virus. It it literally is showing the inequalities of the systems that we live in very clearly. And one thing that we're realizing is that America has been at war with Iran, and I think that this is being able to be illuminated in the ways in which the injustice of the, the sort of chokehold that America has in Iran um, is also coming to light in this moment in the very, like, most cruel and inhuman way. Um, and so I think the international community, for a country like the U.K. even to, like, come um, and ask the United States to lift sanctions, I think it's something that is um, really unprecedented. Um, I think that there. is—I think something that is important, though, is that there has been precedent for the United States lifting sanctions during— major humanitarian crisis. So once in 2003, the BAM earthquake in Iran under Bush, which was temporarily lifted, when 38,000 Iranians were killed, and again once um, under Obama, when there was another major earthquake in Iran. So there is precedent for lifting sanctions, but I think this current regime um, sort of is unprecedented in many ways. So I think uh, we're all sort of figuring out what the response um, or how we can push um, this the current situation to be able to think about the ways in which we're trying to recraft the world in a way that works for everybody and not just people living domestically here. Um, We have actually seen China ship a lot of um, medical supplies to Iran, and I think that there's something to be said about the ways in which this is almost pushing, um, and this will have an effect for years and decades to come, and the ways in which America is constantly failing um, in terms of its lack of leadership, and the world is sort of looking at um, America and China and ends of one that's sort of putting a foothold on the world and China coming to try to like continuously defend planes of hospital beds um, and equipment and things like that so I think that's really important to note um, right now for the campaign I think what's um, just so difficult is that sanctions are feel so theoretical and feel so intangible um, we don't have like a local sanctions office in all of our you know cities that we can just kind of go and protest to also so we can't go and Protest physically. So I think right now, um, what's really important for organizers is figuring out how we can use this moment um, in a truly intersectional way to think about how we can creatively um, protest people and bring people to light who have always been behind the scenes. Um, People like Steven Mnuchin, who is the Secretary of Treasury, um, and all of uh, everyone who's sort of wrapped up in the operations of this, being able to like talk about again like the sort of the global relationships of our health here people around the world and why it's absolutely important that we're working on lifting um, sanctions so people can fight um, COVID because our health care also depends on it. And that allows us to also think about different ways that people are responding. I think one thing also important to note is that like Iran has released almost half of its inmate population um, it's in order to sort of contain the, the spread of the virus, whereas in the United States, you're seeing it at Rikers. Uh, just a spike in the number of
0: people who are infected and they're uh, in, uh, definitely Huda, in Huda, Huda, I think uh, the past 20 or 15 seconds because you, you got cut off I think either because of the internet or the sheer speed at which you are uh, sharing so uh, can you repeat right, the bit just about with can the you repeat inmate. the bit about the Iranian inmates inmate. uh, both in the US yes. and the United States and Iran yes
1: I'll
3: talk slower. <laughs> um, so one thing also important to note is that um, in Iran, uh, they've actually released almost half of the entire inmate population um, in order to be able to prevent the spread of COVID. Whereas in the United States, we're seeing at Rikers and many other um, detention centers across the country, people are we're seeing a huge spike in in terms of people who are contracting the, the virus, and also just. Just the mass lack of sanitary equipment the ha- uh, jails in the United States are actually producing sanitary um, equipment with little pay no pay for the rest of the population while dying doing so so I think that there's even um, ways in which we can understand like things that have been done right and be able to also bring it here and like ask also that we also release more inmates in order to like deal with this uh, the uh, the spread of COVID. So I think being able to, um, it's really important that we're able to to use the, the fact that we're learning that our health is linked to be able to tie things even to people here domestically in the ways in which we need to be fighting um, to really make sure that everybody is safe both here and abroad and the ways in which that our individual health is really linked to that on a global scale.
0: Thank you guys so much. I I, I mean, I know that Noura and I would love to speak uh, further uh, and, and actually address more dimensions of this, but we're, we're hitting, we hit and passed the 30-minute uh, uh, mark, and we'd love to speak with you again, actually. Hopefully, hopefully we won't love to speak with you again, because this would subside, <laughs> but we will uh, definitely be in touch, and unless uh, one of you, or both of you have some closing remarks, uh, we uh, would love to wrap up. Do you have anything else to say, or Noah do you have any, uh, anything else to ask? Well... I'm okay. Well, thank you, thank you so much for all your work, Uh, Huda here, and thanks, Alex, for also your work. Uh, And uh, just to reiterate, uh, can you just tell us where you're speaking from? Because uh, one of you is in Iran, one of you is in the U.S. Correct? Chicago.
2: Yes, I'm speaking from Tehran. I'm in
3: Chicago.
0: Okay. What was that? That was too fast, Huda. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm joking. Thank you, thank Chicago, okay, thank you so much, Chicago, Chicago. Chicago. thank you so much guys, Chicago. and please be safe, and we'll be in touch,
2: you.
0: Okay, sounds good, Good to see you guys. Bye, 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 bye. talk soon. <laughs>